one of the ways of distinguishing between the left and the right hemisphere is that if you like the right hemisphere is better at contacting the real presence that is there whereas the left hemisphere represents which already means it's no longer present but after the fact a version of it a scheme of it which is necessarily diminished now a map relates to the world and is useful because it doesn't have very much information in it compared with the reality it maps. It has only a thousandth of the information. It wouldn't be a better map if it had more information. But the huge mistake is when, when you say, this map, that's the reality. And then we start thinking, we're living really in this map. And I believe that's where we are now. And in fact, I would make a claim that it, it's not clear that we still live in a world at all. We exist in a simulacrum of that world that is of our own making. You have found the Thinking Mind podcast. Today on the podcast, I'm speaking with Dr. Ian McGilchrist. Dr. McGilchrist is a psychiatrist who trained at the Maudsley after studying both philosophy and English literature at Oxford. In 2010, he released a book, The Master is Emissary, which is a book that's primarily concerned, among other things, about the differences between the two hemispheres of the brain. And in this book, Dr. McGurkis describes how the two sides of the brain not only do different things, but really see the world in a uniquely different way. And a lot of what he describes can be very helpful in seeing the different ways that we're prone to looking at the world. And in fact, his book has gone on to become very influential in numerous disciplines besides psychology and and neuroscience. I really enjoyed this conversation because it really brings together a lot of strands related to biology, neuroscience, psychology, philosophy, and spiritual thinking. And I hope you get as much value out of it as I did. We talk about a range of things such as psychotherapy, the state of modern psychiatry, how his book relates to ancient practices like meditation. And we also talk about his new book, The Matter of Things, which only took him 10 years to write, which will be out this autumn. As always, please like, follow, subscribe wherever you listen. And as always, thanks for listening. Dr. McGilchrist, thank you so much for joining me today. Not a bit. I'm I'm delighted. I first heard about you, I think, through Sam Harris's podcast and subsequently on Jordan Peterson's podcast as well. And I saw that you had written a very wonderful and, and if you don't mind my saying, quite paradigm-shifting book, The Master and His Emissary, about a lot of things. (laughs) but partly about the the difference between the two hemispheres of the brain. And I was very intrigued to learn that you had trained in the Maudsley as a psychiatrist after yes. after studying philosophy and, and literature for a long time. Uh, one, right. th- one thing I'm curious about is, you know, what I've found in my psychiatric training is, to the extent that I am familiar with the humanities, it has really enriched my practice and the way I see patients and my work more generally did you find that that was the case did you find that there was a difference between you having this background in philosophy and literature and that of your colleagues the way the way you saw your work 
Well, I, I feel enormously privileged that that was the case, that I had this possibility to do things in this rather unusual way. Um, it was not without its costs, of course, um, uh, in in time and, and, and work and, and so on, but uh, it, it made a huge difference. I've always believed that medicine occupies a rather wonderful ground uh, straddling science and the humanities. Uh, but unfortunately, it seems to be standing on one leg most of the time these days, that of science alone. Uh, what I tried to do in my work was to show through a fairly painstaking examination of the science that there was more to uh, what a human being is and indeed to the idea of what the brain is than has been sometimes assumed rather too easily by uh, people in the field, particularly non-clinicians. Um, a practicing psychiatrist, I feel, has a, a better grounding than somebody who has an, in theory, psychiatric training, but effectively has deserted the wards as fast as possible to, to live in the lab. <laughs> and I, I have found that the, the response to my book by people I consider really top-ranking um, people in the field, uh, fortunately, has been very positive, whereas people who sort of uh, are scrambling their way up what looks like a very mechanistic track sometimes think, mm, the neuroscience is fascinating, but why does he connect that with people and society? And, <laughs> and to me, of course, that is hilarious. I mean, the whole business is about people and society and their brains. Yeah, what what was it like when when you were training? Was there much of an emphasis on psychotherapeutic expertise and and psychology? Because the impression I get is with time, that's been very much diluted in favor of a more hardcore biological and quite a mechanistic stance in terms of how we we see patients and their problems in psychiatry. Well, I think that process was already there when I trained. In other words, psychotherapy was was on the run. Uh, it, I think there was a sort of small ghetto somewhere in the Maudsley where people still practice psychotherapy, but on the whole, that was not, not what one did. Um, and I'm not entirely opposed, of course, uh, you would imagine. Uh, I'm particularly fascinated by a kind of psychiatry that relates this to the brain. I mean, that's been the fascination for me. The tendency can be that if it's not tethered to um, something as um, e easily observable and measurable as, as the brain, um, it is not always necessary, of course, and I'm not saying that the greatest psychiatry always needs to be referring to the brain, not at all. But I do think that if it lacks that tether, it can go off into the sort of farther reaches of outer space quite quickly. And I, I, um, I'm not very well versed in Lacan, for example, but and perhaps that's that's the reason I, I will say things that may, may offend people who are great fans of Lacan, but I, I find him untethered. I find, I find it... Um, a largely fantasy in a way. I mean, perfectly okay fantasy, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I once read, read a book, uh, well, in fact, I have reviewed the book uh, by Darian Leader, who is a, a, 
uh, um, I was going to say a leading figure, but I expect that's that's right uh, in the world of um, psycho psychotherapy. And in it, he said, "Well, you know, uh, it, it, treating a psychotic patient with psychotherapy can be unrewarding. It can take twenty years, and it may not produce results. But you know." And I, I kept thinking, but. Um, it, why does that not lead you to the conclusion that there might be better, more effective ways of treating it? And that the fact that it takes so long and is so unrewarding may suggest that you're barking up slightly the wrong tree in this case. What I find, of course, though, let me recast this because I think this is very important, is that what I think is so, so lacking is the relationship between the illness, the disease that we're looking at, which, by the way, is often, as William James pointed out, a very good way of helping us understand the normal workings of the brain. When things go wrong, that illuminates something very important. But um, there is there's something quite lacking in the way in which we tend to practice now compared with um, nothing this to do with psych psychotherapy, but with the the, the practitioners in the area of what one might call broadly brain-based psychiatry going back 80 years. So what I discovered is that many of the best and most interesting research um, was, was done by authors usually writing in German or French, sadly, and a lot of it has not been translated. One of the things to offer in my new book in a, in a small way is to have investigated that literature rather thoroughly and translated some of it um, in, in the course of doing the book. Um, but what you see there is in-depth study of cases. So they may report a patient and there may be 30 pages. There's no psychotherapy there, but what there is is a full examination of that person from the neurological point of view, from the whole physical point of view, and the recordings of what they were saying, what they experienced, and a sort of philosophical interest in what was going on. Now that, I think, is, is wonderful. And if I may say so, one of the, uh, as you say, I started off in the world of the humanities, and one of the things that led me into medicine and psychiatry was uh, the misunderstanding of the so-called mind-body relationship. And I thought the philosophers approached this in a wholly disembodied way. So I wanted to approach the same question from a more embodied angle, which meant studying medicine. But one of the things that influenced me then was uh, Sachs's Awakenings, which had only just come out. And I thought, what a model of a wonderful way to look at this interaction between mind and brain, between person and disease, because what he did was he took, again, case studies, uh, and you got the sense of real human individuals, and he reported what they were experiencing and what they were saying, but largely in footnotes, which, thank God, were at the bottom of the page, not in some ghetto at the back of the book, um, he, he turned from this in, in towards uh, important general principles, philosophical ideas that were seen through the individual. One of, the, one of my theses in, in the new book is that one of the many <laughs> points I want to make is that the individual and the general don't have the relationship that we often think they have, but rather, as Goethe said, one finds the general in the individual.
not sort of despite the individual, not by turning one's back on the individual or the unique case, but by going more deeply into the individual and the unique case. So do you mean like the individual can be a portal into understanding generalities and you can accumulate, you can accumulate understandings of different individuals to get an understanding of the general, like almost a, a jigsaw puzzle? Uh, perhaps, yes. I mean, I agree with everything except maybe the image of the jigsaw puzzle, although I, I, it's harmless. <laughs> I'm happy with that. But um, an image that I like very much, it struck me as very deep, is that of a Japanese Zen garden called Ruanji. <laughs> and it, it has in it, I think, 14 rocks, you know, amid the raked gravel. And from within the garden, there is no point from which you can see all 14. The most you can see from anywhere in the garden is 13, <laughs> which is rather lovely. And it, it, that images for me two things. One is that what we see in the world is not a simulacrum. It is real, but it's partial, so that we can only ever know part of the story at any one time. And one way of looking at the relationship between our patients and the realities that they embody is that by knowing more and more of them and going into more depth with more and more of them, we begin to see the same territory illuminated from different angles, from no one of which can we see everything, but by accumulating as many as possible, we can see a whole picture. Yes. And sort of in that vein, talking again about, you know, different models, different ways of seeing our patients, what I find really interesting is to see things, you know, from a medical or biological perspective, to see things from a psychological and a social and so on, from a phenomenological, and to see where the things line up. Because if you find, and, and a spiritual perspective uh, as well, and to see where does everything line up, because I often find that I can find a particular concept or, you know, a piece of truth, if you like, that reveals itself through all of these different levels of analysis. Absolutely. And I think that we're not doing the job properly unless we take into account these different aspects, the physical, the psychological, the social, the spiritual, because they are not, they're not at war with one another. They complement one another. And as I think you were hinting, they very often line up together to give a coherent picture. One of the things I do in, in this new book of mine called The Matter with Things, called our brain, the subtitle is Our Brains, Our Delusions and the Unmaking of the World. Um, one of the things that I uh, do there is to say that we, we often think of things as antagonistic, which are in fact entirely consonant one with another. So if you think about the main ways in which we think we can encounter reality, how can we, how can we get any idea of what is probably more real than anything else? To use the word a single truth is to misconceive what truth is. But nonetheless, there surely is truth. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to say or do anything or have any reason for acting. Or, or <laughs> so there are certainly things that are truer. How would we approach that? Well, I think a lot of people would say through science, 
uh, and I don't dispute that at all through reason. And again, of course, that is true. Um, intuition, uh, I strongly think that one of the things in our age is that we've been, that, that uh, intuition has been misrepresented and traduced and is a much more important source of knowledge than it is currently being given credit for. And imagination, which actually not is not some characteristic that takes you away from reality, but is actually the only hope we have of encountering reality. So that in fact, what you find through science and reason and intuition then is in service to the imagination, which allows one to see what it is one is looking at. Because the accumulation of answers or information is not the same as an understanding. And that's one of the problems that we, encounter I think in a lot of present day psychiatry is that we think that because we can set up a very often artificial experiment we can put people through a scanner in, in large numbers and we then have very powerful statistical packages that can carry out thousands of correlations. We end up with an extraordinarily dry paper uh, which large sections of which you would have to have a very um, high threshold for boredom to be able to work your way through and which seem to have very little to say about humanity <laughs> or any human being but produce a, a, a bunch of statistical facts. What I have done in the new book is to take much further the process of the master and his emissary in which I used to proudly say I had consulted 2,500 pa papers the new book um, draws on 5,800 papers. And uh, I really do uh, can tell the reader that I have, I, I don't say I've read every word of every one of them, but I have read part of them. I've looked them up and, and, and actually studied them, which is more than can be said for many of the papers that I have uh, in that process discovered are copied from one person to another. They end up in people's bibliographies, but they never said anything like the thing that they're famous for saying. You know, when you actually come to examine them, uh, you, you really do need to go back to your sources. Um, but anyway, I, I, I'm, what I'm saying here is that there is a process in which one needs to gather this information and rehumanize it. In other words, to see it not just as little drops of data, but as composing a picture. Mm -hmm. And a picture might have pieces which oppose each other, importantly. So rather than going through the data, trying to find to confirm what you already know, and this is a problem in science because it, you know, scientists are incentivized to produce positive results which fit with the positive results that they've accumulated Absolutely. previously, which is obviously a problem. It's a problem in psychiatry and 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 elsewhere. Um, talking so talking more about the masters and, and his emissary in that book, you lay out that you know the right and left hemisphere of the brain. Not only do they do different things, but it's far more fundamental that they see the world in a different way. How can certain psychiatric or neurological conditions, how do they illuminate the, the differences uh, in the way the hemispheres see the world? Yes, I mean, I, I, I can begin to answer that question. But I mean, first of all, what I should say is that um, one of the reasons that I was, you know, profoundly discouraged from 
investigating hemisphere differences when I was at the Maudsley was that in those days it had a reputation for being a, an exploded hypothesis, um, a pop psychological hypothesis, partly because in the early days of a wealth of discovery about hemisphere differences from split brain patients, um, people had naturally, because that's how science works, speculated. And indeed, the idea that science is not made by speculation is itself a false idea. And um, if you had to examine independently and entirely objectively every conceivable possibility, science could never get off the ground. So people start from an intuition that something here looks like it might well be the case. So let's examine it. Um, and so out of that came some absolutely truly popularized nonsense. For example, that the left hemisphere is uh, rational, perhaps a little bit dull, but highly dependable. The right hemisphere is sort of exciting and a little bit sort of unpredictable. But anyway, there we are. <laughs> we have to put up with it. But uh, <laughs> as you know, uh, and, and I, I elaborate this argument to a much greater length in the new book, um, the left hemisphere is not more reliable, actually. It is not it is not, it has less insight into reality. Its actual perceptions are not as good. The judgments it forms on perceptions are more open to delusion. They tend to be much more cut and dried and it tends to jump to conclusions. It is not unemotional. Uh, it tends quickly to get angry. Anger is one of the most lateralized of all emotions and it lateralizes to the left hemisphere. Um, and the right hemisphere, meanwhile, is what uh, V.S. Ramachandran calls the anomaly detector, the devil's advocate, the one that says, yes, but hang on, there's something here that's interesting. And you pointed out the, the necessity of not uh, conflating everything so that you uh, don't see the anomalies. Science moves forward when people spot an important um, anomaly. And, they, and of course, you don't want to change your um, paradigm every, every hour because a, a new finding comes up. You have to wait until there is a critical mass that causes concern. And uh, that's when you actually need to make a paradigm shift. So what I, what I discovered was that it was not about what the two hemispheres do, because as people rightly objected, we now know they're both involved in everything perfectly correct but they are this is the important thing we missed doing so in a reliably different way so the how is the difference not the what and that is not something we're trained to think about because we tend to be trained to think in terms of mechanisms in other words a thing that hits another thing that causes another thing to happen we're not thinking about processes in a human being we're talking about what a machine does and our brains are not machines however useful that analogy might be in a very confined way to understanding certain details it is not a good way of understanding the whole so that's a bit of a preamble because i can't assume that everyone who's listening to this knows much about my work um how can this be applied specifically to individual uh, conditions it can um, but in a way, I'm using psychiatry to be um, a portal to an understanding of human life, what a human being is, rather than you using it the other way around to understand the specifics of a disease. But there are certain conditions, notably schizophrenia and autism, which, while they cannot simply be summed up as um, 
a sort of right hemisphere uh, deficit condition, uh, nonetheless have very striking parallels phenomenologically with people who have explicit injuries, strokes, tumours, or whatever it may be, uh, causing malfunction or hypofunction of the right hemisphere. And it's much more striking than anything to do with the left. So if you wanted to approximate um, an individual with um, schizophrenia, uh, you'd find yourself making most of the lesions um, in the right hemisphere, not in the left. And what, one way of looking at schizophrenia is it's like a freewheeling left hemisphere without the necessary counterbalance of the right. As was pointed out by Minkowski, Eugène Minkowski, who was a, a very important Franco-Polish psychiatrist um, working in, in Paris in the 1920s, the first part of the last century, uh, the schizophrenic is not somebody who has lost his reason but has, as Chesterton later said, lost everything but reason. Reason gone wild. Reason gone wild. So it's perfectly true that if you don't have any grounding, intuitive grounding or understanding of what it's like to be living a life as a human embodied being, when things come to you from your unconscious, instead of owning them and accepting them, you think, where did that come from? I didn't consciously will that. In other words, your, your mind has been closed down to the tiny, tiny part, uh, thought to be less than half a percent of what the brain is actually doing, which is the bit that we're consciously aware of. And then you attribute all these odd things to something else in a very logical way. So, for example, if I didn't intend to think that or to do that action, it must be that something is influencing me. I can't actually see it. So there must be influencing rays. They, where do they come from? They must come from another being who's operating, perhaps a machine. And, and so you're soon off into um, a world of utter madness, but, but one that is, in a sense, entirely rational from a certain perspective, if you're not really taking in very much of the world. Yeah, when you, when you talk to someone who has very prominent, particularly the more systematized delusions, someone who's having a psychotic episode, they're often so vast and they have a very, you know, easy to follow internal logic. It's a logical world that they've created. And again, like you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, how, you know, when you examine pathology, it often informs everyday life. What that kind of taught me is the way that people, even people without, you know, mental health conditions, they can be very logical and they can have a very valid logic but they're missing something really important and I, I kind of see that a little bit as the difference between wisdom and intelligence you know they have a very logical and valid representation of what's going on but zoomed out you can you can see how how problematic it is and one of the reasons why I really enjoyed reading your book is because I see even from my own experience how easily I can be seduced by the notion that the, the model I'm using to get to a particular goal is certain and correct and I can become trapped and, and embroiled in it or even that the goal I'm pursuing is the correct goal and reading your book has really helped me to recognize those two very different states of mind and, and how, how what an active process 
it is to try and get out of that and get to a point of embracing uncertainty. Well, yes, uh, I like the word active process because I believe that all processes are not linear. They're not unidirectional. So all interactions and all of life is relational and interactional. In fact, I would say that going beyond that, and I argue in the book, uh, supported by physicists, that relations can be said to be prior to relata, to the things that are related. That may make no sense because according to the world picture we have, there are just things out there uh, isolated and we put them together and it's our making of relationships. But in another way, you can't know what those individual things are until you see the nexus of relationships in which they exist, which also alter what they are. So once you've taken them out of that nexus and out of that context, you have change their meaning. I, I often refer to the fact that John Dewey said that, in, and a great philosopher in my view, said that the greatest mistake in all of philosophy is its tendency to decontextualize. That's a very important point, I think. And there's a danger in the practice of psychiatry and, and in all of the way we think nowadays, um, broadly in our culture, that we tend to decontextualize things, we abstract a phrase, a word, an idea, a belief from a whole nexus of things which qualify it and may indeed invert the meaning of it um, completely. So um, what I would say about um, the, the, uh, the idea of uh, 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 the understanding of a person is that we have to see that person in that context and I, I think that when we talk about reason, for example, I, I would like to qualify that, much as I'd like to qualify science. So uh, it might be thought that in my discussion of epistemology, how, how, do we, how do we find our way toward truth, that to point to science and reason and intuition and imagination is to line up the right hemisphere against the left, but this is not the case at all. Um, that they work, not only they work in tandem, but to divide it like that is at right angles to the way in which the fault lines lie. They don't lie between science and reason and judgment and imagination. They lie between a left hemisphere interpretation and a right hemisphere interpretation. So let me take science. Uh, what we're taught at school is that science is this purely objective logical procedure whereby you start from no preconceptions and you, you carry out experiments according to a multi-step process called the scientific method and you then have firm conclusions. I don't want in any way to undermine what I'm going to say it doesn't in any way undermine the importance of science. In fact, it sets it on a firmer footing which is to say that it's not just this most unimaginative, unimaginative, uncreative process. It couldn't be, as I pointed out before. We can't just assume that all possibilities are equally likely or we'd never arrive at any conclusions. But also, as I point out in the book, and I don't think this is controversial, science does make many uh, first assumptions that go unexamined. It wouldn't be able to get off the ground without them. It's just the pretense that it doesn't make them. I'm not criticising that. I'm just saying it's the rhetoric that it doesn't make assumptions that needs uh, to be questioned. But um, when you look at the story of 
the really great scientists who made um, the, the big discoveries in, say, physics or, or, or in biology, indeed, too, um, and mathematicians, when you look at the story of how they reached their conclusions, as George Gaylord Simpson himself, one of the founders of the, um, you know, the, the whole modern synthesis, uh, which, which underlies mainstream science, said that it's very unusual that actually in practice anybody is really found to be following the quote scientific method, which is more a theory that's been parked and is useful to draw on and it's a bit of rhetoric. Well, we use the scientific method. But if we did that, we wouldn't be very intelligent. We'd be more like machines that have been programmed to do stuff. But actually, fortunately, mathematicians and, and good scientists are very intelligent and imaginative people. And in the arriving at their conclusions, their stories are absolutely clear. They rely on hard work and reason, but they also rely a great deal on pattern perception, on uh, seeing a gestalt, that's the kind of whole that is more than just the sum of the parts, uh, and on a kind of intuitive insight, which often comes uh, after a long period of allowing something to go fallow, and then the insight comes. So um, science is, uh, and that part we know is robustly associated with the right hemisphere, so insight is uh, particularly associated with the right superior temporal sulcus and the right amygdala. But th that kind of insight, which is behind all creative processes in science and in the arts, is very right hemisphere dependent. But we also use the left hemisphere procedures up to a point. So it's grounded in intuition. It ends up in intuitive insights. And in the middle, there may be a lot of hard slog done by the left hemisphere. The trouble is that in the picture we now have of it, the only bit that's important is this intermediate step it, done by the left hemisphere. Now, the same thing is true of reason. Reason, importantly, in many languages, uh, particularly in of the ones I know, Greek and Latin and German, has different words for different types of reason. And we just seem to have this one word. And so I have uh, created um, the, a distinction between what I call rationality and reason. Rationality here, I have to use in a special sense, which is the kind of reason that is based entirely on abstract procedures uh, in the way that you could feed something into a computer and it could um, spew out a result. Whereas reason is something infinitely subtle and complex, as Pascal himself said, I mean, after all, one of the great mathematicians of all time, um, that it is a very fine and subtle thing that is very hard to specify, but it comes from the coming together of the practice of understanding logic, of course, with um, an ability to understand by experience, by intuition, by one's emotional and social intelligence, what is going on here. And it's the sort of thing that in the past, one would have admired a good judge for and prized a good judge for being able to uh, exercise. Increasingly in our world, uh, everything is becoming uh, subject to a left hemisphere take of bureaucratization, rules, procedures, best practice, and people's hands, doctors and uh, judges and lawyers and so on, all these people who have an embodied skill from years of experience, they're being made to follow tram lines, um, which actually takes them away from this wisdom. Now, that wisdom was anciently seen by people like Aristotle and, and Plato as being this 
different kind of understanding. I mean, Aristotle uses five or six different words for um, a kind of knowledge. And, and so he's therefore distinguishing different kinds of knowledge and different kinds of reason, which we now conflate to one, which is the mechanistic model. And just before I finish this, sorry, yes, before I just finish this, 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 uh, this riff, <laughs> um, um, the, 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 there's something very important about the model. You mentioned this earlier, you know, we need to see outside the model. We can't understand anything without a model, anything, because a model is a way of saying, how can I get a handle on this? I see, I think it's like this, which to an extent I can say I understand already. So that's what we mean when we say I understand something, is we approximate it to a model that we think explains what we're talking about. And... So they're necessary, absolutely necessary. Um, but we need to be examining how good the model is and trying other models. It's again coming back to the Japanese Zen garden, that from where we're standing, we're seeing some of it, but not what we'd see if we moved around the garden. And that's really what we need to be doing, is saying, yes, a machine model illuminates this, but it doesn't illuminate that. And in that... Um, this and that, I'm not suggesting that they are symmetrical. There is a tendency in our thinking always to think that if there are two options or more, that they must all have equal validity, but they don't. Um, uh, there is absolutely no basis for believing that at all. Almost everything in this world is, is asymmetrical. And what the right hemisphere sees is more important than what the left hemisphere sees, and it can embrace it. So it doesn't turn its back on it. It doesn't say there's something wrong with what you're doing. It doesn't say, it just says this is not enough, and it takes it back and incorporates it into a bigger picture. So really what I'm getting at is that there are some models that can embrace lesser models. And at the moment, we're stuck not only with one model, which is never good enough, but with one of the lesser models. <laughs> and that is a great shame, because I think it's limiting science quite unnecessary. Yeah, it's a bit how it's a bit similar to how Newtonian physics is nested within Einsteinian physics. Exactly. Like Einsteinian physics can account for Newtonian physics and more and therefore is a better model. Correctly. And you need to have a model because reality is simply too complex. Yes. But the danger is either becoming overly attached to a model, mistaking bad models for good models, falling in love <laughs> with your model. <laughs> or I guess the worst one is to mistake the model for the territory or the map for the territory. So, so true. Um, so profound and important an observation. Uh, it's... It's one that's been frequently made. Um, and one of the ways of distinguishing between the left and the right hemisphere is that, if you like, the right hemisphere is better at contacting the real presence that is there, whereas the left hemisphere represents, which already means it's no longer present, but after the fact, a version of it, a scheme of it, which is necessarily diminished. Now, a map relates to the world, and is useful because it doesn't have very much information in it compared with the reality it maps. It has only a thousandth of the information. It wouldn't be a better map if it had more information. But the huge mistake is when, when you say, this map, that's the reality. And then we start thinking, we're living really in this map. 
And I believe that's where we are now. And in fact, I would make a claim that it's not clear that we still live in a world at all. We exist in a simulacrum of that world that is of our own making. More and more as we create abstractions of abstractions of abstractions. That's right. And, and you see this evidence, not just at, obviously the supplies at higher levels of philosophy, uh, up to what is the cosmos and, you know, what is the nature of its, its foundational elements, which I explore in the new book. I look at um, time and space and, and, and matter and consciousness and value and purpose and even the notion of the, the sacred and the divine. What can we say about these things, knowing what we know about what the brain is capable of telling us? So we, we, need, we need to be examining those things and not just uh, accepting our representations of them, because the representation changes enormously what it is. This is particularly important when it comes to time. Time... We, we are so attached to our representations that we think time can be simulated by a line drawn on a sheet. And we're here now, we will be there in the future and so on. And in that you can find a point uh, retrospectively because it is a re-presentation and after the fact simulation of something, which in reality is neither static nor has this, this sort of linear structure nor is composed of moments of time, points of time. Those are an aspect of the map or of our diagram of it. That's our interpretation of what's happening. Yes. And an analogy that people will understand, I hope, is what is a line? Well, you might say it's um, an aggregate of many points. But a point has literally no extension. I mean, that's the definition of it. So it doesn't matter how many points you put together, you will never arrive at extension. Even an infinity of them will never give you the extension of a line. If you imagine pencil points, you're already smuggling extension in because the smudge of a pencil point already has extension. So although you can perfectly correctly say there is a point in a line, which I can now in my diagram say, I'm going to treat that as a point. The line is never made up of points. Extension, you cannot get from a point to extension in, in a single move or any number of moves. Something new has come in. As you can't get, and Aristotle and Plato were honest enough to see that this was a problem with the rather left hemisphere way they were beginning to conceive the world. Nor can you get from stasis to motion. In the Newtonian universe, stasis is primary, and what one has to account for is motion. Some force comes along and puts things in motion. What we now know is that there is no such thing as stasis. It's an entire fabrication, if you like, of the left hemisphere's representation. Everything, always, without exception, is in motion. All you can do is reach asymptotically a moment when motion is so reduced that you, you can discount it, but it's always there. That, and they, Aristotle and Plato, accepted that it was paradoxical. They asked this question and confessed they didn't have an answer to it. When a stone is put in motion, before it's put in motion, it's at rest. After it's in motion, it's in motion. But what happens at the very moment when it begins to be in motion? At that moment, is it at rest or is it in motion? Mm. <laughs> and what that 
what that illuminates once again is this idea that motion can be made out of something from stasis, but motion is something sui generis. It is not composed of lots of bits of static anything. So are you saying that there's no such thing as being at rest because everything is dynamic, everything is constantly in motion? I, I am saying that, and I, I'm, I, I'm, of course I'm, I'm not denying that in everyday life things are, for most purposes, we can identify that they're pretty much static. But what I'm saying is that these are convenient fictions, and I, I, there's nothing wrong with having convenient fictions. We can't live without them. You know, for example, if I want to build a garage, um, I don't really need to take into account the curvature of the earth. But if I am going on a journey for thousands of miles, I do need to take account of the uh, curvature of the Earth. And it's not that round here... And, the, and the, curvature, the curvature of the Earth is a factor whether you acknowledge it or not. And in, That's right. And in a way, that's a, an analogy for what you said earlier, quite rightly, about the relationship between Newtonian physics and uh, quantum physics. It's not that in the local level... Uh, Newtonian physics is correct, but as you go to bigger or smaller um, uh, quantities, it becomes incorrect and something else takes over. Quantum uh, physics is applicable at every single level. It's just that at the local level, you can, for most purposes, discount certain things. And, and that, that's really what I'm saying, is that if we take a narrow enough view, a local enough view, some of our bits of model can be um, effective. For example, I believe that all systems are effectively complex systems. We may believe that complexity is something that is built up out of simplicity. So at first there are simple systems, and then either they are put together with other simple systems, become more complex systems, or somehow they complexify. Uh, I believe in common with many physicists that complexity is the uh, grounding foundational state uh, uh, and that the idea that there is such a thing as simplicity is again a convenient mental fiction which is achieved by once again as always by narrowing focus. So if you narrow the focus enough if you take a very, very complex system that is actually not just unpredictable because we don't know enough, but intrinsically unpredictable, you can find in it perhaps somewhere in all this elaborate network of interacting cascades, which, which map the sort of thing that goes on in a simple cell, single organism that is a single cell, uh, 10,000 interactions that have cascades that interact with one another in a second. You can take that map and focus in on a certain point and you can find uh, just for a little while, two or three arrows that go from A to B to C. And if you do that, you can say, oh, I want to intervene there. I can produce a result. And you do intervene there and you do produce a result. So you think, how clever. I actually understand it. It's a machine. It is not a machine for eight or ten reasons that I go into in, in, in the book. So it's, it's this business of narrowing down one's focus. It's not that it's untrue exactly. It becomes untrue when you take it to be the whole truth. As the philosopher A.N. Whitehead said, and, and he's somebody I very much admire, um, there are many half-truths, and that's fine. It's when you start taking them for the whole truth that, that, that plays the devil, as he said. I think there's even a Buddhist saying... There's a Buddhist saying that uh, every truth is but a half-truth, which is a reminder of, I suppose, of humility. 
Um, something I'm really curious about, you know, we were talking before about how you need intuition first, the primacy of intuition. Something that I couldn't find, despite all the interviews of you that I scoured, is um, what was your first intuition to write The Master and His Emissary? What was the, the seed of that? Because you wrote it over 20 years. So I imagine it evolved as you wrote it, a very organic thing. But what was the first notion that you were conscious of? Well, I can be very specific, and it takes us back to the Maudley. And I have said this before, so if you've scoured my interviews, you will recognise what I'm about to say. But in a previous life, I wrote a book in my 20s called Against Criticism, which is about what goes wrong when we try to criticise a work of art, say a poem. And um, it's, it's again, a whole book, but I can summarise it in a few sentences, what was really the nub of it. Um, It seemed to me, through experience, that we were doing something quite damaging to a poem when we thought we were helping understand it. Because somebody in the past had taken pains to create something that they thought would resonate with someone else, perhaps coming after them. And the reason why it was special was that, number one, it was entirely unique. So that a very bad poem is not unique, but a very great poem is entirely unique in the sense that it can't be paraphrased, it can't be translated easily, and what it is saying is certainly not equivalent to a prose rendering of what the, quote, meaning seems to be, because by doing that, you've narrowed all the penumbra of implicit meanings down. That brings me to the second thing about it. It is implicit. And the third thing about it is it is embodied. In other words, it doesn't just act on your cerebrum and uh, some abstract propositions. It actually engages you at every level, emotionally, intellectually, spiritually, um, and it has effects on you physiologically. Uh, as you read it, it affects your heart rate, your blood pressure. Uh, actually, it also causes, though you're not aware of it, relaxations and contractions in skeletal muscle in response to the meter, the movement of the poem. It can make your hair stand end, on end or bring tears to your eyes. So it's a very physical thing. Um, and that, so you have this unique embodied and implicit thing. You then come into the seminar room and turn it into something entirely general, abstract and explicit. And by making it explicit, you ruin it, much as a very good joke mustn't be explained. When it's explained, it's no longer there. So uh, that's, that w- resulted in me writing against criticism. And I got an interested in the mind-body problem because it seemed to be related to this. And uh, was that that uh, impelled me to go off and I thought I need to do this in a more embodied way, as I think I said earlier, and, and Sachs was a bit of a, uh, a, a, a stimulus to that. So I then read medicine uh, and did some neurology uh, and a, at a very you know, SHO level, neurology and neurosurgery, and then went into the Maudsley, where uh, I was particularly taken under his wing by Alwyn Lishman, of course, the great uh, founder, indeed, of, of the concept of organic psychiatry, as we now understand it. Um, and one day I uh, was going down, I remember very well, uh, probably the structure of the Maudsley has changed. It used to be a long corridor that went right the way down. It's, it's the still like that. 
and there was a notice board, and on it there was a, a lecture advertised by John Cutting, and it said the right hemisphere and psychiatric disorders, which was in fact the title of a book he either had just published, it was on the point of publishing by OUP, a book that's still very good, I think. And I was intrigued because in all my training, very little had been said about the left, sorry, about the right hemisphere. Everything was about the left hemisphere and how important it was for language, for grasping things and so on. And the idea basically was that the left hemisphere was more intelligent. I now know that it's actually less intelligent by every measure. In other words, in quite simple terms of IQ, um, IQ is very, very much more dependent on the right hemisphere than on the left. And of course, emotional and social intelligence, which is by no means some inferior kind of intelligence, but it actually is very important for understanding anything that's going on in the world around us. Uh, the right hemisphere is better. So I went along and I remember that I did debate with myself, you know, uh, I'd had a rather busy day and this was an option to go and catch up on some papers, have a cup of coffee. I thought, I'm going to go. And I listened to what John Cutting had to say and it changed my life. It was one of the turning points of my life, quite definitely, because I just couldn't believe what I was hearing him say. He was saying that after spending himself a long time, 20 years, examining what happens to people after right hemisphere injury or stroke or whatever, tumour, that all kinds of subtle things happened to their world. They didn't stop speaking, but they stopped having contact with a recognisable world. And the three things that stuck in my mind, that he said many others, was that the left hemisphere tends to always abstract things from context and it tends to disembody them and put them in a category whereby the uniqueness of them is lost. The uniqueness of something or of a person or of any existing thing is better appreciated by the right hemisphere and this is undoubtedly true than it is by the left which tends to aggregate things in categories. The right hemisphere is literally more in touch with the body, in other words there are more profuse connections uh, with the anterior cingulate cortex on the right, and it has more of an impact on the HPA axis uh, uh, than the left. It's, it's not a cut and dried thing, uh, but of course the body image is also in the right hemisphere, and as you know, that's not just an image in the sense of a visual image, but a whole multimodal body schema. So that was extraordinary. And then he said the right hemisphere is the one that understands all that is implicit, that is not being explicitly said, which sometimes can be, and often in art, well, almost always in art, is more important than anything that is being explicitly said. So when we have really important things to talk about, like the nature of love or the experience of it, or of the sacred or whatever it may be, we turn to poetry because it has that richness to convey many things together, which an explicit statement collapses, rather like collapsing the wave function into a single particle of truth, which is just an aspect. And so I thought, wow, so all those years, what I was struggling to express was something that I found so hard to put into language, why context matters so much, why disembodying things changes them, why rendering things explicit is not better, but actually ruinous. 
All those things I struggle to say, I now see why I struggle to say them, because the expressive part of language making propositions is highly dependent on the left hemisphere. And the right hemisphere that's meanwhile seeing all this stuff doesn't have the language, except it has the language of poetry, which you're at that moment in the business of deconstructing. So I went up to John afterwards and said, you know, this is absolutely amazing. I wrote a book called Against Criticism. You might like to read it. He did. And he was fascinated. And he very generously said, come and research with me. I'm doing various research, often based on a lot of work he had done. And we did some papers together. And that set me off on track. And that was the first, if you like, intuition. But I, of course, as you can see, is it the first? I had it already before I knew anything about the brain. I had it when I was studying, you know, the philosophy of, 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 of ideas in, in, in literature in Oxford. Um, and indeed, I had it even earlier when I was a teenager. I mean, it, it struck me that the idea that the world is a, an unresponsive um, heap of um, inanimacy uh, didn't seem to me right. That the whole is greater than the sum of the parts seemed to me very early on a truth. I couldn't defend it. People said, so what's this extra something then? You're making it up. And I, I just sort of thought, I know I'm not. But I couldn't find words. I mean, now, of course, I know the philosophers who can explain why that is true. But all these things were intuitions I had early on that were crystallized in a way of applying the mind-body problem in, in my previous pre-medical life. And then that pushed me into being a psychiatrist working on the borders between the brain and the mind. And that led to my encounter with cutting, which led to a sudden crystallization. I then immersed myself for 20 years in the literature and that, that eventually eventuated in the Muslim Zemistry. And, and kind of what you've been talking about kind of talks around what is the function, if you could call it a function, or what is the role of art and I, a long time ago, I had a conversation with my friend Yannick, who incidentally is very much enjoying your book. Shout out to Yannick. Um, he, we had a conversation about art and science. Uh, do, you, do you see art as a kind of a proto-philosophy, as, as a, an attempt to express that which hitherto is, has been unexpressible? Well, I do think that... Um... And of course, there's two meanings, at least uh, many meanings, but two importantly different ones uh, to philosophy. One is its original meaning, which, of course, as you know, is the um, love of wisdom. That's literally what the Greek words mean. Um, and I believe that that's what Socrates thought that he was pursuing. He thought it, actually philosophy couldn't be written down because it needed to be expressed between two people who were living as it were together and thinking together and exchange so it was a very embodied relational thing so on the one hand you've got that and I think there are people who who really still try to take philosophy back to that and I, I hope to number myself among them but there is also a very barren I'm afraid in my view tendency which I think is has probably had its day but it's still very powerful in the Anglo-speaking world um, to think that a certain rather narrow way of practicing philosophy that's not more than a couple of hundred years ago then could be unkindly referred to as logic chopping 
is is what is really philosophy and um you go ever more down sort of abstract rabbit holes without actually um in my view approaching any profound truths so art i would say is philosophy yes as long as you mean it in the first of those senses so it's a way of doing philosophy which is perhaps truer to the real meaning of the word than what has now sadly become the representation of it in our left hemisphere academic world. But, but of course, it's very, very important. And I think that if you are at all interested in ideas and not just interested in, in, in sort of acquiring a technique and not thinking about it, then immersing yourself as much as possible in the world of art is vastly to enrich your understanding. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's been my experience as well. Um, something that again occurred to me a lot when I was reading your book, particularly when talking about the right hemispheres, I, I have a bit of an interest in mindfulness meditation. And a, a lot of the experiences and the concepts you described, the, the way that the way you pay attention to something is very important, how it's very important to ground yourself as much as possible in experience itself. You know, one thing you do in mindfulness meditation is you try to experience with something with as few abstractions as possible. So let's say you are meditating and a lot of people feel that you have to meditate in a quiet space like a Zen garden or something like that. But you really can and it can be very instructive to meditate anywhere. So let's say you're meditating and there's a jackhammer outside. One thing a teacher might instruct would be to listen to the sound of the jackhammer as close as possible in such a way that you, you don't apply concepts, concepts like this is an annoying sound, this is a bad sound, this is a sound that's going to somehow interfere with what it is I'm trying to do, but rather you try and get us up close to the raw sensory data as possible. Other things you try and do, there are some techniques in meditation, particularly the meditation that Sam Harris talks about, where you try and appreciate the whole gestalt. You take in the whole panorama of, of experience um in in one whole rather than deconstructing it so do you do you feel then that meditation can be a way of engaging with your with your right hemisphere i i do um in short uh and for a number of reasons um uh, as you say attention is extraordinarily important because i believe it changes the world uh, certainly changes what the world as you experience it. Uh, and I would argue that it possibly actually changes whatever it is we mean by the world, because it's never actually completely detachable from human consciousnesses. Um, and it also, because all relations are reverberative, has an effect on us. So how we pay attention matters a lot. And in a world in which we're constantly distracted and encouraged to um, keep switching focus uh, from one thing perhaps rather trivial to another, uh, it is actually quite disruptive of who we are. So I do think that the groundedness offered by mindfulness uh, and meditation is is very, very important. And you asked the question about the right hemisphere, and I think there are a couple of ways of thinking about this. I mean, the simplest is that the research shows that actually... Uh, the, the, the most uh, I'm talking here in generalizations you must understand and I go into it in, I have a whole appendix in the book on this looking at the, the scientific data but broadly speaking uh, 
What is happening is that it is engaging areas of the right hemisphere and rebalancing, as you were, the normal balance of the brain is that the left hemisphere is a little dominant and this is this helps to uh, redress that uh, and also that actually people who practice mindfulness and so on uh, actually develop um, a thickening of the cortex in certain areas of the right hemisphere that's perhaps the most trivial uh, then you come to the um the work of uh oh gosh bane bane Hennep- I always get this name wrong. It's it's six or seven syllables, and I'm afraid I never remember. But he he has written a a book about mindfulness, which and he's considered probably the world's leading um, exponent of mindfulness and an attempt to convey this to Westerners. And, And there's a passage in that book where he describes what it is like and what it is not like. And I take that passage, which is half a page, in my new book, and I, I, I note 23 places in it in which you can see that what he is saying is this is more like what by now the reader knows is the right hemisphere take of the world than the left. And so it's very, very clear from the description of what he's, he could almost be describing. We need to think like this basically the right hemisphere's take on it, rather than this, the left hemisphere's take on it. But there is a third level, which is perhaps um, more important still, which is this. One way of looking at the profound distinction between the take on the world of the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere is, as I said, the distinction between the world that's lived in the map. And... What happens in the right hemisphere is that the world is where the world presences to us, if it still does. And the, the verb presence in this way is not usual in English, but it's an attempt to convey a concept of Heidegger's unreason. What he is referring to there is not just that something is present, but that it in a way sort of actively becomes present for us and to us in a way which is not isolated, but is again, a reverberative relation between our consciousness and it. So that I can have an idea that this is a beautiful wild landscape here on sky around me, but actually to be present with that landscape and see it really, I have to abandon all ideas that, oh yes, this is a beautiful landscape. And instead stop thinking and be present with it. And that actually is a very difficult thing because as Wordsworth said, you know, he lamented this as as a boy, the world was so vivid that he was present with it, but that now it was already pre-digested into concepts. As he got older, he couldn't stop that process and that it took him away from that vibrant reality. So that presencing is really what meditation is trying to get back to taking you away from your busy left hemisphere chatter, what's called monkey mind in, in, in the world of meditation. This constant chatter of the left hemisphere, uh, I understand that, yes, no, but I don't think I like that. I mean, we could call it something like that. No, you have to stop all that and just be there with it. Sorrow, the, uh, the, the author of Walden, one of the you know, mid-19th century German, uh, American philosophers and uh, and biologists that I very much admire, 
they said, if you want to understand a plant, you must forget all your botany, which, of course, is not to say that botany doesn't reveal things. But that actually to really see the plant, you have to be there with it and put all that out of your mind and see it as if for the first time. And he says at the end, you will have no paper to deliver to the Royal Society, but you will at least have been there with and understood a plant. You will have seen it rather than just catalogued it. What that makes me think of, and this is a bit of a tangent, but hopefully it's relevant. I I spend a lot of time thinking about how one can sustain long-term romantic relationships. And I think monogamy and the family unit is kind of under attack nowadays. And I think one of the problems with long-term relationships is, you know, when you start dating someone, you get involved for the first time and you fall in love, you see them, you know, they're a new person, they're a novelty in your life. And then with time, they start to fade and become more of a an object in your universe rather than a person full of surprises and, and complexity. And I think one of the things that can help, you know, keep a relationship sustained over many years is to do things activities that can renew that sense of novelty of seeing again that person as though you are seeing them for the first time seeing them as someone a living breathing dynamic creature rather than just this static thing with very you know predictability often is kind of a relationship killer and a lack of spontaneity and that's that's kind of what he said made me think about that I like that very much, Alex. I think that's very good indeed. Uh, I think it's it's true that one needs people to talk about working at a relationship, and and I think there's truth in that definitely. In that you can't just coast, and you need to be mindful of that other person in the relationship. It sometimes sounds like a kind of routine hard work where you do this, you know, I have a bullet point list, I must do this on Thursday with my partner, my wife, my whatever. But I think what you were pointing to is um, what I would recognize is that one needs to have enough space in the relationship to be able to stand back and understand again afresh who this person is, because you can be in such, under such pressure particularly if you have children, I don't know if you do, but I mean, I certainly, when I was doing my training, in fact, when I was a houseman, because I went into medicine late, uh, I was working 120 hours a week. It wouldn't be legal now, but I was. And I had three children, and I think I had two children as a houseman and three, but by the time I was an SHO. Uh, you know, and can you imagine what that's like? So I know all about, <laughs> about that and how that does disappear. And I like the concept of predictability because, of course, the whole point about an abstraction in this mechanistic vision of the world is that it becomes predictable. It becomes Laplace's idea of a universe where if you knew all the movements and positions of all the particles, you could predict everything that happened from thenceforth. I mean, we now actually know from physics that that is a fantasy and it is absolutely untrue. But nonetheless things become stereotyped, they become um, dead, inanimate, they become jaded, they become cliches of themselves too quickly. And what you're saying is one needs to recover that life that is in the relation. And I like that very much, yes. I think, I think that's very true. I can't, can't say I've always 
managed to practice it. I've done my best. But I think one of the interesting things is that when you are really in love with somebody, it takes me back to something I alluded to earlier. It's at the time as if, and everyone who's been really in love knows this, it is an absolute sense of uniqueness. I mean, there is nobody like this person in the world ever before or after, which is true. But also there is something absolutely unique about this experience, which is also true. And yet, of course, it is one of the commonest, most general experiences of humanity over thousands of years. So at the same time there, you see a really beautiful example of what I mean by seeing the general through the lens of the particular. And it doesn't take away from either particular or general. We need them both. And this, uh, this, again, brings me to something very important in this new book, which is the idea of not allowing opposites or apparent opposites uh, to collapse into one another, not to allow them to fly apart, nor to allow them to collapse into sameness. To embrace the tension between them. Yes, there needs to be a creative tension, which is not a negative thing, but actually a very positive thing. And in a way, it also to come back to your thing about human relationships or close partner relationships. I mean, I've always felt that there are two kinds of problems. It's like two heavenly bodies that are circling one another. They need to have a certain distance. If not, they, they fuse, they collapse into one. Or alternatively, they fly apart. What you want always is to have them circling one another. And the great thing here is that in a good relationship, a functioning relationship. The individuals don't sacrifice their individuality to the relationship. They grow their individuality through the relationship so that their partner doesn't sort of eat up and take away parts of them, but actually nourishes it. And if this is a reciprocal process, this is a wonderful relationship. Mm-hmm. And talking again more about your new book, why is, why is, in your view, Heraclitus the most important philosopher who's ever lived? <laughs> well, this may or may not be a recommendation, but Nietzsche certainly thought he was. Um, <laughs> it was the first philosopher that really struck me as, oh my God. I mean, at school, we studied Plato, um, partly because it was a way of reading good Greek texts, and, and, and that was fine. But I always thought, this is fine, but there's something kind of missing here. And then I read Heraclitus. And effectively, I found the same experience that I had when I discovered the Tao Te Ching. Uh, and, I, and you could say I'm a Taoist, really, uh, or a Buddhist, <laughs> um, or even a Christian, because these things are not necessarily at war with one another at all. Uh, they, they can be made very, you can find very, very similar strands in all of them. But anyway, to come back to that, um, it's this idea of flow, the coming together of opposites, the relationship between the particular and the general, the one and the many, and particularly this idea of the tension between opposites, which he called harmony. It's not harmony in exactly the sense that we would think of it, but one of the images that has always stuck with me is that of the tension of the string in a bow or a lyre. And as he points out, it is the pulling apart in opposite directions maximally that causes the creative power of the bow to let fly the arrow 
or the lyre to let fly the musical note. And it wouldn't be better if you said, well, it's a bit illogical to be pulling in two directions that are opposite. Why don't we conserve energy and let the, what, the line go slack? But of course, then you haven't got a lyre or a bow. So, I mean, simple things like that, but there, there are endless insights in Heraclitus. Another thing I like very much is that, oppositely to me, he had the gift of extremely aphoristic pronouncements. So rather than writing very long, he wrote very short. I mean, he was rather um, aided in this by the fact that what we know is largely reported by other people who remembered things he'd said. <laughs> um, so there we are. But anyway, I do think he's very important. And he, he forms a very important counterpart or counterpoise, if one might say, to the tendencies of our modern way of thinking that, you know, parts account for holes, that opposites are simply the other ends of a line and that you really you want one over here and you don't want that one over there, which can never be, and, and so on. So I think he's a very great philosopher and, and for me has to be number one, yeah. Mm-hmm. Something you said about psychiatry, which I really liked, was um, you said something that's quite fundamental that you often talk to patients about is that there are good bits, there's a good side to the bits that you are afraid of and the dark side to what you pride yourself on. And I, I you know, I, I love that because I feel it encapsulates so much, but I wonder if you could expand a bit on that for people who might not be aware. Yes, well, uh, starting from the most concrete level, you get people who come and what they're reporting is that, you know, they have enormously good intentions. And as a result, they feel they need to take care of their family. But their concept of care is perfectly understandably that they must protect them from anything that might be harmful and they must control them as much as possible in the path towards what is beneficial. And what they experience is that not only does this not happen, but that there are tensions and resentments in the family. And this person who believes that she's being a wonderful mother is actually producing something which is contrary to what she thought. Um, And so helping her or, or him to see what it is that is happening and that some of the things that seem good are bound up with things that are not and vice versa is quite important. One of the most toxic ideas is that of perfection. And it's often said that our culture somehow elevates and I understand what's meant by that through advertising and so forth, an ideal of perfection. And uh, I think it's a very important thing to see the dark side too. I say that the problem with perfection is that it is highly imperfect. Uh, It has many, many flaws. And it's, it's, a, it's a great problem because people would come to me and say, very common thing people would say is my life feels out of control. And I say, well, in a kind way, well, you know, join the club. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, it's, I think you'll find that a lot of people feel that and for a very good reason, which is that there are very few, almost vanishingly few things in life of any importance that you can really control. Um, and, and when you come to think about it, you've tried to control things and you found that you can't control them. That's not because there's a fault in you. That's because this idea may not be a good one. And so um, helping people to accept the idea that 
life is not a series of problems to which perfect answers must be found, but that it is a flow, again, coming back to Taoism and to Heraclitus talking about the river as this ever-changing but ever-the-same flow of experience. Um, it, it, the idea with a flow, like the crest of the wave, is that you find yourself moving with it, not trying to resist it, because you waste your energy trying to resist it. I mean, this was, if you were a Buddhist, then you know very well that this is central to that kind of thinking. So at that level, it, it's practically the case, but I think at a, at a really rather profound social level, we, we, we're in the grip of this as a grave malaise. So much talk about social problems now is generated by... Often, and uh, nothing wrong with young people having vehement opinions. That's part of being young. But the problem is we've lost confidence in saying, okay, yeah, but actually it's a little bit more complicated than that. And so there are lots of people mouthing extremely black and white opinions, very um, aggressively, arrogantly, one might say, and refusing to hear anything else. Now, in there's a lovely story you possibly know it, but I think all psychiatrists should. Um, a, a Chinese story about the man who loses his horse. Do you know about this? Yes. It's the Zen. It's kind of a Zen parable. Tell it, yes. Yes. So, uh, in short, a, a, a man, a farmer, one day loses his horse and all his neighbors say, oh, what bad luck. And he says, well, bad luck, good luck, who knows. And the next day his horse comes back with another horse that it found on the hillside. And people say, Oh, what good luck. And he said, well, good luck, bad luck. Who knows? The next day, his son tries to break in the horse, falls off and breaks his leg. And people say, oh, what bad luck. And he says, well, bad luck, good luck. Who knows? The next day, the emperor's soldiers come to the village and recruit all the able-bodied young men and, men and take them away to war. And his son is excused because he has a broken leg. And he will say, well, Good luck. You, you get the point. So we don't really know what the consequences of anything may be, except in the, again in the very short term. If you take a very simplistic view and a very crude idea of causation, then you think this must be good. And if it's a little of it is good, more and more and more of it may be good. But everything has its good side and its bad side. And if you push, if you push things far enough. Life is not linear. I mean, this image of the straight line is a terrific impediment. In fact, the um, uh, Austrian um, painter and architect Friedrich Hundertswasser called the straight line the downfall of mankind. But instead, when you push, and this again, I, I remember thinking in my teens, when you go far enough one way, it's not that you go away from what you fear. You end up right back there. So, for example, extreme left positions in politics are very like extreme right positions. And actually, interestingly, I always say about religious matters that the divide is not between, quote, theists and, quote, atheists. It's between fundamentalist theists and fundamentalist atheists on the one hand, and the rest of people who take an, a sort of nuanced, adult, exploring view that we know little that we see something there, we don't know what it is, we can't dismiss it, can't say what it is. Now, on the 
probably 90% of mankind actually fall into that category, those who call themselves agnostics, atheists or believers. It's the problematic people are the ones who know they are right. <laughs> who, are, who are possessed by certainty. And uh, an interesting... And I, I don't know if you know the writer Douglas Murray, but the, a point he makes, which is quite interesting, is that when talking about uh, social and political situations... People often talk as though that they're at the end point of history, that, you know, everything that's happened has happened. And now we're at the the finishing line and, you know, those and we can locate all the the badness, as it were, either in the half of society that we disagree with or with all of the people that came before us. They were bad. They didn't see they (laughs) couldn't see the forest for the trees. And now we've we've figured it out. And now we're here at the at the utopia or we'll be at the utopia very, very shortly. And it's such a it's such a trap to fall into. Yes, and once again, we come to the idea of the straight line. Uh, this is very new. I mean, traditionally, societies have always seen time in terms of circles or helixes. Where I like the helix better than the circle, which suggests you come back where you were. Uh, but the idea of the helix is that as you ascend the spiral, you come back almost to where you were, but you're now at a slightly different level and you can see something of where you were before. But that you are generally moving in this way in which you cannot avoid opposites. But the, the notion of linear progress is one that no intelligent person in the past would ever have thought. Even the Greeks and the Romans who had great empires, they knew perfectly well that they are for a time and that they don't have all the answers. What causes the downfall of any society and the downfall of a person is the belief that we now know. It's what the Greeks call hubris, and it led to what they called catastrophe. Catastrophe literally means downfall. And the great Greek tragedies are all about the theme of somebody who was great and thought he knew everything, and that caused his downfall. And it's our... I mean, you know something in in psychology called the Dunning-Kruger effect, which shows that people who know very little think they know everything. Um, And even when it's demonstrated to them that they've clearly got it wrong compared with other people, that doesn't shape their belief that they're wrong. They they believe very strongly they're right. People, however, who know a lot are aware of what it is they don't know Mm -hmm. and therefore are much more circumspect. And and what you said about sort of the myth of linear progress, you know, it's... It's hard to overstate just how baked into our biology that is. Um, it might be, it might seem crude to use a gym analogy at this point, but um, even if you, anyone who lifts weights to get stronger knows that it's not just a question of you can't just continue going for sessions and lifting more and more weight and progressing linear, linearly. You have to do so in cycles, so you'll build up for a point, then allow fatigue to drop, allow your muscles to rest and recover. And there are cycles within cycles within cycles. There's a microcycle. So you train one day, you rest the day after. Then there's what's called a mesocycle where you train for a week, then you train in blocks of a month, and then you have rest periods between all of those different cycles. So it's quite fascinating just to see how far down this goes. Yes, and as you can imagine, I'm afraid uh, you've you just educated me on mesocycles. I, I didn't know about this. But what I do know about, and it, it, it brings us back to um, the plight of somebody in training nowadays as a psychiatrist, is that it's also very obvious from the history of people who have made breakthroughs in ideas uh, 
that they need to do a lot of hard work that at the time seems to be going nowhere. And then they need to have a fallow period in which their attention is directed somewhere else. Because the gorgon stare of constantly trying to solve this problem means that you narrow down, literally, your attention so that you don't actually allow the bigger picture to grow. Now, when I, when I was at the Maudsley, I, I had a very academic background before I came into psychiatry. Um, and I thought, well, now that I'm here, I'd like to go to the Institute and begin doing some research. And I went to the Institute and uh, had an interview with a distinguished psychologist um, who I won't mention the name of. And she said, uh, what would you like to, uh, what would you like to research? And I would like, I said, well, I'd like to research how it is that we develop the concept of time that we have. Is it innate? Do children have it from the word go? If not, how do they acquire it? Does it change over time? All this sort of thing. Profound questions that, you know, in, in the new book, I mean, in the last part of it, when I look at the so-called building blocks of the cosmos, one of them is time, uh, which still fascinates me. But anyway, I said this, and her sort of, she looked at me and said, very interesting, and her sort of eyes glazed over, and she said, why don't you come and help us clone the P450 receptor? And I sort of said, I don't want to clone the P450 so that was my first experience. And I realized that actually that was not a one-off. That was basically how things work in, in, in the academic machine. So I decided if I'm really going to pursue the questions of importance to me, I need to make my own path, which I did. And I, I did do neuroimaging at Johns Hopkins and so on. So I, I, I did do research of that kind. But I thought I really have to take charge, if you like, of my own time and not uh, squander it, as it were, in constantly writing papers. Because the one thing that I have allowed myself at different points in life, and it has felt precarious, it has felt like, should you be allowing yourself this period of time? Other people may think you're doing nothing. But actually, in retrospect, I now realize that none of the insights that I believe I have had could have happened if I'd been told, you need to produce a paper every three or four months for publication, because that has the immediate effect of crystallizing your attention. An enormous amount of, as you know, horrifically left hemisphere stuff has to go into just getting a published paper. And it would have effectively stopped my mind from taking on the bigger picture at all. So I have been lucky, but I've also been strict with myself not to go down those sort of rabbit holes, but to take the risk, you know, because it's, it's much less risky if I'd just gone and said, yes, I'll claim the P450 receptor. I'd been part of Robin Murray's group. Eventually, I'd have got my chair and possibly, a, you know, a gong or something. But that actually is not, <laughs> not what I wanted. And I feel very, very fulfilled that I've been able to take a quite different path. It's been risky. But I, I think... I can now say it's paid off because so many people in all walks of life and increasingly in, in neuroscience and psychiatry and so on are, are saying, you know, we cannot, we cannot afford to neglect this. Yeah, I feel the same way. I mean, your, your time and energy are the most important resources you have. And I find you can often use that time and energy to engage in things which actually give you 
payback in the form of fascination, enthusiasm, meaningful engagement. And of course, that's not to say, you know, you can't necessarily construct a life where everything you do, you know, pays those kinds of dividends, but you can choose to budget, you know, just like you would budget financially, you can budget your time and energy similarly to benefit benefit that those those arenas as much as possible that's right that's right yes yeah, so so in the end what i did was to opt i i worked my way through the mortuary system as a consultant um at bathroom but um then i thought really i spend most of my time in very unproductive matters for me um, because what I really have always enjoyed, and it's not a piety to say one learns from one's patients, one really does learn from one's patients. I mean, many of my insights have come through just spending time with and listening to patients. So I didn't want to take myself off from that living source of, of experience of what it means to have a, a, a mental illness. Um, so I made the decision, which I never entertained, of becoming a private psychiatrist. And through doing that, what I was able to do was to work extremely hard for 60 hours a week uh, and pack that into uh, four days in the week, or three days in the week, really. And, and in the end, I spent the rest of the time writing the master in his atmosphere. So, you know... Some people say, why did this much bigger book that you have just written take you only 10 years, <laughs> the, the, the matter with things? It's, it's in two volumes. It's, it's, it's kind of large. Um, when, you know, the master's emissary took to print here, well, the answer was I was leading a full-on clinical life as well as researching, reading papers like, you know, there was no tomorrow. And, and so, in a way, it's a miracle that I managed to find the time to write it. I, mean, I, I look at it and think, the person who wrote this actually spent a lot of time and hard work. And I think, you couldn't have done that. <laughs> I mean, it certainly, you know, it reads that when I, when I was reading it, it I felt the, the weight of the work that must have gone into it. It's absolutely colossal. Um, I always, you know, thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed this. I always ask my guests at the end if they have any questions for me after I've bombarded you with questions. <laughs> How much are you enjoying your training at Morsley? I'm enjoying it a lot. I'm, in, I'm doing my, so I'm in my SPR training. And the nice thing about that is, sure. you know, aside from your clinical work and there are really good, you know, specialty posts, I'm currently working in an addictions clinic, which I'm finding very interesting you do have, like you said, enough space and enough time to devote, you know, to things that you're interested in. So I'm doing psychotherapy training as well and, and this podcast as well. And in some strange way, I find they're very synergistic. They, they feed into each other in some way, which I can't quite articulate, but perhaps will become clearer with time. I'm glad you said all of that because I too very much enjoyed my time there. It was wonderful. So many wonderful teachers, really, specialist units uh, in which you could really immerse yourself in fascinating um, material, clinical material, and at the same time have time to, to do research. So, no, I loved it, and I'm very pleased to hear that it's as enjoyable as it was when I did. When does your new book come out? 
the 9th of November. 9th of November. Um, yes. Uh, it's just gone to the printers. Um, and I'm hoping that there may actually physically be copies sometime in October, but it's not actually going to be physically, uh, sorry, uh, officially published till the 9th of November. However, people can, uh, if they're interested, go to Channel McGilchrist, which is a website um, started up by some, some friends and colleagues a year ago because they said you have no presence on the internet, quite correct, because I, I don't do social media at all. I mean, not even the tiniest tweet. You're so, lucky. Um, <laughs> no, I <laughs> know. Um, but very fortunately, and again, I'm lucky, people said, well, we can do all that for you. Anyway, there is a thing called Channel McGovern. If you go there, you can not only um, buy it at a discount, um, but you can also expect to receive it probably ahead of, of publication. Yeah, well, I'm very much looking forward to reading it. And I would very much encourage everyone to read The Master and his emissary. Absolutely wonderful book. Thank you. Dr. McGilchrist, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you very much, Alex. You are listening to the Thinking Mind podcast. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend or give us a rating. It really does help people to find us. If you find the podcast valuable, why not buy us a coffee to help keep us going? There's a link in the show notes. As ever, we love to hear from you and love to hear what you think. So drop us an email or get in touch on social media. Thank you so much.